0: Good morning again. Great to be here with you guys, oh, how Um We're going to continue in our study of the Gospel of Luke, and specifically, we're going to look to wrap up a study that we began last week. Uh, last week, we read through Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 24, in a study that I entitled "Delusional Dinner Company." Uh, last week was part one of this two-part study, and so today we're going to cover part. Two In our text, we read about what happened one particular Sabbath when Jesus was invited over for dinner at the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees. And while at this dinner, Jesus interacted with a number of different people and people groups. Some of these people were delusional. Not delusional as in they had a mental disorder of some kind or they were psychotic, uh, or suffering from psychosis. Uh, These people were delusional in their thinking, in their beliefs. They had either been tricked or deceived into thinking something that wasn't true, that, that wasn't based in reality. Someone who is delusional believes something to be true and to be real, Even when it is actually false, and that was the case for many of these people, while at that dinner party, Jesus encountered different types of people that had held to beliefs or opinions that were completely false, and Jesus confronted their delusional thoughts and opinions. Now, for context's sake, we're going to read our text in its entirety, once again, kind of everything that happened that day at the dinner party, uh, but we're going to focus in mainly on the last uh, part of it, the second part, the part we didn't get to last week, Uh, But don't worry, if you weren't with us last week, or maybe you've already forgot, uh, hopefully that's not the case, but if so, uh, we are going to do a review. We'll take a few minutes just to kind of catch everybody up. I'll highlight the points that we made last week, and we'll continue to build off of those. So uh, if you haven't done so already, open up your Bibles to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and then once you're there, I'd like to invite you to rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and His Word. I'm going to read our text this morning from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, that's okay. Just do your best to follow along in your own Bible. Luke continues his narrative account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ with the following in chapter 14, verse 1. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy, and Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent, and he took him and healed him and let him go, and then he answered them, saying, Which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. And so he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him, come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and "'Sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, "'he may say to you, "'Friend, go up higher. "'Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. "'For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, "'and he who humbles himself will be exalted.'" Verse 12. "'Then he also said to him who invited him, "'When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, "'your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. "'But when when you give a feast, invite the poor.'" the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said to him, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, Said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highway and the hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. That's the word of the Lord for us again this week we we'll pray and ask God to lead us through it. Father, we give you uh, this time in this uh, study, asking, Lord, that as we've opened up our Bibles, Lord, that in turn that we will have opened up our hearts and our minds, uh, our eyes, our ears, that we might receive all that you have for us. And so, Lord, uh, speak to us through your word. Lord, uh, mold us and shape us. Give us wisdom to understand the context of these words that were shared uh, amongst these dinner guests, and Lord, give us wisdom on how to apply them to our own lives, that we might grow in our understanding of who you are and what you'd have for us. So we give you this time of study. Uh, We ask for your blessings and continued presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. So I'll take the, you know, a few minutes just to review, get us kind of all caught up and on the same page. Uh, for those of you who were here last week, um, bear with me. Okay? Uh, it was the Sabbath. Jesus had uh, no doubt enjoyed gathering together at the local synagogue for a time of worship and scripture reading. And afterwards, it would appear that he was invited over for a meal at the house of a very prominent man from the community. a, A particular ruler or leader or chief, your translation may read, amongst the group of Pharisees. Jesus received the invitation. He came to the ruler of the Pharisee's house, despite knowing the evil intent of his heart and the hearts of the other Pharisees and religious leaders in that place. And we noted in our study last week how Jesus was not afraid to confront people who were in error with the truth. He did not shy away from sharing the truth, even if it was something that was completely contrary to some to what someone believed or or thought. He was very bold. He understood their need for truth. He was not afraid to speak forth the truth. And Jesus serves as a wonderful example to us in that manner. We too should be bold to share the truth with the world around us. This world needs the truth of the gospel, and we cannot be afraid to share that truth. Paul wrote to the church in Rome, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation, for the Jew first, and then also uh, for the Greek. May we boldly, unashamedly proclaim the gospel message of Jesus Christ. To the world around us. Well, as Jesus showed up, he was immediately met with a man that had dropsy, a medical condition that causes excessive fluid retention and swelling that can cause a great deal of pain. The religious leaders had no doubt planted this man as a trap to try and get Jesus to do or say something that they could then use against him and discrediting him or getting people to turn away from him. They thought that they had him trapped. If Jesus didn't do anything for this man, well, they would be able to then uh, use that against him and show to all the people that were there that he was someone who didn't really care about the hurts of the people and he didn't care about the needs of others, that he was you know, heartless and without compassion. But if he did do something, if he did show compassion and reach out and heal the man, well, then they could accuse him of breaking their religious traditions and the customs for healing was considered work and work was not be, to be performed on the Sabbath. And so he said, hey, you know, we've got him, right? Either he won't do it, and we'll accuse him of being heartless, or he will do it, and then we'll accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. Well, Jesus very cleverly responded to the religious elite by asking them a very simple question. He said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus knew that he he was not violating any part of the Sabbath law as as God gave it. Because it was the religious elite that had taken God's law regarding the Sabbath day of rest and through their own interpretations, through their own man-made traditions, had turned it into a day of burdens. When they remained silent, Jesus showed compassion and he reached out his hand and he healed the man of his medical condition and sent him on his way. And before the religious elite could even say anything to Jesus, he once again questioned them and he said, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? Jesus knew that they had provisions within their own interpretations and their own man-made traditions to make special allowances for certain work that wasn't permitted on the Sabbath. One such rule pertained to their livestock, their cattle. Okay, If their animal fell into a pit on the Sabbath, well, they could pull them out, even though it was technically work and it would be violating the Sabbath, there was an exception made for animals. And so Jesus' question is, quite pointed. It revealed the religious elite's own selfish and hard hearts. They cared more about animals than they did their fellow man made in the image of God. They made allowances to help out animals on the Sabbath, but they were bringing an accusation against Jesus for helping a human being on the Sabbath. And it was hypocrisy, something that Jesus dealt with with the Pharisees over and over again, their hypocrisy was uh, at an all-time high. And Jesus challenged their hypocrisy. He did not allow them to continue holding that double standard. He showed the error of their own thinking and responded in compassion towards the man. And we noted in our study last week how important it is for us to not only share the truth, but to share the truth with love. This world around us needs the love of God demonstrated through the children of God. And it is the love of God that has the power to change people's lives for good. And so we must speak the truth in love as described in ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 this world needs the truth of god and the love of god to be shared hand in hand okay Well, after he was done with the religious elite, Jesus turned his attention toward the ambitious guests that were seeking out the best seats in the house for the dinner party. Jesus shared a parable about an ambitious guest and spoke of how we shouldn't take the best seats available when invited to a wedding feast, a, a wedding banquet, but to take instead the lowest seat. Because if we take the high seat, we may be asked to leave if someone more prominent or more deserving of that seat comes along. You would then have to endure the shame and the humility that would come with being asked to give up your seat. Jesus said it's better to start at the bottom and and, uh, take a humble approach to things. It could be that the host of the party may come along and, and raise you up to a more prominent seat, but maybe not. And that's okay. That's not the emphasis. You see, the point of the parable was to teach the need for humility. Okay, these people thought they could be exalted by rubbing elbows with the most, uh, those who sat in the most prominent seats, in the best seats, but Jesus taught that exaltation comes from the Lord, and that it is the Lord who will humble those who seek to exalt themselves, but will exalt those who humble themselves. James chapter 4, verse 6 reminds us that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And in our study, we noted how humility involves surrendering ourselves and all that we have to the Lord in his service and how Jesus was the ultimate example of humility as he humbled himself and he left his home in heaven to come dwell among us as a man and then to lay down his life for us upon the cross of Calvary in fulfillment of God's great redemption plan. Jesus humbled himself here on earth and God exalted him up in heaven giving to him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus taught us our need for humility in God's kingdom. As we go out and we share the truth of God with the love of God, we must do so humbly before our God. We don't come across as high and mighty when we share the truth in love. We do so humbly. Humbly okay, hoping that they may respond to the gospel message that they may churn from the deception and the lies that they've built, lies that they have built their lives upon And that's where we left off. Okay, so we built up those three points. Okay, that idea of how do we address people who are uh, delusional who have lived their lives in such a way building their lives on false beliefs and false opinions You know, we come to them with the truth. We come to them in love we come to them in humility And we're going to pick up with the rest of the account here. We looked at the delusional religious elite in verses 1 through 6. We looked at the delusional ambitious guests in verses 7 through 11. And we pick up the rest of the account by looking at two more groups of people in our text. First of which we're going to cover is the selfish Pharisee in verses 12, 13, and 14. And then we'll wrap up our study by turning our attention to the presumptuous Jew in verses 15 through 24. So take a look at the text pertaining to the selfish Pharisee that invited Jesus and others to his party for purely selfish reasons, as we'll see. Look at verses 12 through 14. Again, it says, Then he also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, your translation may read crippled, uh, the lame and the blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So after addressing the ambitious guests, Jesus turned his focus and attention upon the host of the dinner, one of the rulers of the Pharisees. Jesus told his hosts, Now when he hosts a dinner or a supper, not to ask his friends and brothers and relatives or his rich neighbors to come, the verb used here is written in the present active imperative with a negative particle in the Greek, which usually means to stop and act already in process. This was the norm for this guy. Jesus tells him to stop doing it. This is what you always do. You invite people over who are rich, your family, your friends, you know, and your relatives, those who are able to pay you back. Stop doing that is what he's telling him. Now, was Jesus against getting together with family and friends? No. No. Okay, of course not, right? That's not the emphasis here. The idea is that this should not be the only type of dinners that you host. Okay, it's okay to host a dinner with family and friends, but it shouldn't be the only time you ever do something like this. And the reason Jesus told this host not to invite these people is because they can easily host you and they can return the favor, basically. We get the sense from the text that there were only two reasons this host had invited these people to this house, okay? And none of them had to do with love. (laughs) One, on one hand, there were probably people within the group who had invited him over to their house, and so he was simply returning to them the favor, repaying them for their own hospitality. It's like, okay, I owe you, now you're going to come over. You had me over, so now I'll have you over, kind of a thing. And then on the other hand, there were probably people within the group that the host wanted to put in debt to himself so that they would be forced to invite him to their next dinner or supper. Instead of hosting people as an expression of his love and and his service, these dinners he hosted were nothing more than a way to settle accounts or to indebt people to him. This isn't love, and this isn't the kind of hospitality that Jesus would encourage us to participate in. You know, we can see this sometimes. I don't know, maybe you've uh, been a part of this before how it plays out even in today's day and age. If you go out to dinner perhaps with some friends and maybe they pick up the bill, there could be a certain sense of obligation to return the favor the next time you get together. It's like, oh, you got it last time. I'll get it this time, right? And that can be okay, but instead of getting together in love and simply enjoying fellowship, the motive for gathering simply becomes a means to settle accounts and to repay people for something that they did previously. It's like, oh, you know, you did it this last time, so I'm going to do this this time. And, and, and sometimes it can create an unhealthy relationship that masquerades as fellowship and love when it really is only driven by selfish motives. Okay. We need to be careful that we don't fall into this sort of trap of oftentimes trying to one up one another and keep tabs with one another. Oh, you know, Well, we went to a really nice restaurant last time. So I guess we have to take them out to an equally nice restaurant, you know, and we have to, it's, you know, I got to keep the balance, right? And and the emphasis becomes this balance of making sure that we're not indebted to anybody rather than just loving people and getting together and enjoying fellowship and not worrying about those things. Okay. If you want to bless someone and have them over for dinner, take them out to dinner, that's great. Hey, but don't use that as a way to try and coerce someone into returning the favor of you or making you feel make them feel obligated like they have to return that. Okay? That's not the intent of hospitality. Don't do things like this with the expectation that you'll be repaid. Just do it out of a sincere heart of love and, and generosity. You know, because it's just, hey, I, I want to do this. I want to bless you, let me take you out. Okay? Not because, you know, okay, and you do you'll you'll get me in next time. No, no, don't worry about it you know? That's why Jesus then tells the man to instead invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. These kinds of people would never be invited to these types of events. For one, they were often considered unclean or unholy. Uh, You know, the book of Leviticus has within it a provision for the sons of Aaron regarding any descendants of his who had any sort of defect, not being able to serve as priests before the Lord. Okay, it's uh, actually in Leviticus chapter 21, Uh, verse 18. It states, for any man who has a defect shall not approach a man blind or lame, who has a marred face, or any limb too long, which is basically the same as maimed or crippled. People took this one rule about Aaron's descendants serving in the temple as priests, and they basically tried to apply it to everyone. Uh, And we've noted this before, but many people saw deformities or disease or disabilities as some sort of divine retribution. That, you know, oh, these people must have done something horrible for God to have allowed such a thing to happen to them. But that was obviously not the case. That was what many people thought, though. And they believed during that day. And so you would never invite, you know, someone like a man with dropsy or a blind or the lame or the maimed to your thing. It's like, oh, they... They've obviously, obviously done something wrong. Okay, uh, hidden sin, and so God punished them for that, or something like that. And so, they would not be welcome guests. But another reason these people would not be invited to these sorts of dinners simply because there was no way that they could ever return the favor. There was no way they would ever be able to reciprocate the offer. And so it's like, well, I'm not going to invite you because you're never going to be able to do anything for me, right? It's not a uh, it's more about what you can do for me. I'll have you over because, well, you can repay me, right? And I'm going to get something out of it. What's in it for me, right? Well, you're, there's nothing in it for you when you just host people that can't return the favor, who can't reciprocate from a world's perspective. And so they would not be invited. Doing something like this, inviting the blind, the maimed, the lame, the uh, the crippled, okay, Uh, would be a genuine sign of love and generosity because these sorts of people would have no way of ever repaying you, of ever returning the favor. Now, it is interesting to consider the different times. I did uh, just a basic search through the Bible looking at different times when the blind, the lame, the maim are, are listed together. And you'll find that oftentimes these are the people that the prophet Isaiah mentioned as the ones Messiah would be sent to. These are the people that Jesus ministered to. In Isaiah 61, verse 1, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus, when he first began his earthly ministry, he read from this portion of Scripture where Isaiah speaks of the Messiah ministering to the poor and to the broken and to the blind. And he proclaimed, Today this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You see, when John the Baptist was even having second thoughts about who Jesus was and sent some of his own disciples to speak to Jesus, Jesus said, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. These are the very people Jesus came to save. Okay, the same kind of people Jesus ministered to throughout his earthly ministry. Matthew's gospel tells us how great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, the mute, the um, the maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Nobody else wanted anything to do with these kinds of people, but these are the people that came before the Lord on a regular basis. These were the outcasts, the broken, the unclean, the unwanted. And Jesus showed compassion and love towards them, and he touched their lives in powerful ways. They could never repay him. They could never reciprocate what Jesus did for them. It was all a demonstration of God's grace of his great compassion and his generosity. Well, Jesus stated that if this host would give a feast and invite those kinds of people, okay, the ones nobody else wants to invite, the ones that nobody cares about, okay, the blind, the maimed, the lame, the poor, then he would be blessed and repaid at the resurrection of the just. And this is, of course, speaking of our eternal home in heaven. The resurrection of the just. It speaks of living for an eternal reward, not an earthly reward. And the idea is quite clear. You can seek the favor and applause of man now and take your temporary reward here, or you can look to the eternal and store your treasures in heaven. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6. He said, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them, otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Surely I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Later later on he continued, he said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So you see, God basically says you can have it one of two ways, but you can't have it both. You could take your reward now and and the applause of man that is temporary and fleeting. Or you can store up your treasures in heaven and wait for that eternal reward. But you can't have both. (laughs) You either get rewarded now or you get rewarded later. And the emphasis Jesus is pointing to is far better to store up your treasures in heaven Okay, far better to live for the eternal reward than a temporary earthly reward. When we serve and minister to others with a pure heart, with an unselfish heart, God will see it, he will reward it, and we can serve others in that sort of manner. When we do so, we are storing up treasures in heaven, and we are looking forward to a far greater eternal reward in Christ. Well, this leader of the Pharisees, he was delusional. In thinking that his hospitality was something to be admired or something that set him apart, Jesus challenged him to minister to those who couldn't repay him and to store up his treasures in heaven. Again, this is what Jesus modeled for us. He ministered to us not to get us to be indebted to him, but because he loves us. He came and he ministered to a bunch of people that could never repay him, never reciprocate to him what he gave to us. He was focused upon the eternal, securing a place for us in heaven, so that we could be with him. And so Jesus, he is the model of this as well. Let's turn our attention to this last section of our text where Jesus shares another parable pertaining to a banquet and guest and see what truths we can discover. Read with me just verse 15 to get us started as we'll be introduced to a presumptuous Jew that I believe was a bit delusional himself. Verse 15 says, Now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Pause right there. Okay. Things at this dinner party, you guys, were probably beginning to get a little tense, a little serious. Imagine, if you will, you're there, you're part of the crowd. Okay? Jesus was invited in and immediately was met by a man with dropsy, a confrontation, a man staged to try and entrap him. Jesus quickly dealt with that situation by asking a few simple questions and healing the man and sending him on his way. Jesus had silenced the group of Pharisees and the lawyers. So the Pharisees and the lawyers, they're just sitting there brooding, silent, not saying anything. Jesus then addressed a great many of the guests. He rebuked them basically for seeking the best seats in the house and trying to exalt themselves. Then Jesus turned to the host himself of the dinner party, rebuked him for only hosting the kind of people who could pay him back, and challenged him to love and serve the least and the lost, that they may store up, that he may store up treasures in heaven. It would seem like the only people Jesus hadn't probably rebuked in some form or manner at that place was probably the servants. But everybody else has already been kind of blasted, in a sense. You know, he's come against them, he's challenged them. You guys are wrong in your thinking the Pharisees, the lawyers, okay, the ambitious guests, even the host, he's confronted every one of them. And so we get the sense that I imagine the tension in the air was palpable, okay, that it was like, okay, nice dinner party, huh? (laughs) Laugh it off a little bit. When one of the dinner guests heard Jesus mention something about the resurrection of the just, he seems to use that opportunity to try and lighten the mood a bit and mention a A happy thought, hey, blessed is he who shall eat bread or dinner is the idea uh, in the kingdom of God. Now, in chapter 13, if you remember, we're in our study, we read about how the Jewish people pictured their future kingdom as a great feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and, you know, all the uh, Old Testament prophets sitting and dining together with the Lord. Isaiah, the prophet speaks of a day where God will swallow up death forever and the Lord will... God will wipe away tears from all faces. Uh, The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, Isaiah 25, verse 8. And on that day, Isaiah speaks of how the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. You see, the Jews pictured their future kingdom as a great feast where God would swallow up death and wipe away every tear. Every Jew believed that he would be a part of this great feast. And so one of the Jews there in the house, he shouts out, "Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God!" exclamation mark. Boom. Hey, hey, we're all we're all going to be blessed, right? We're all going to partake of the uh of the dinner together, right? Let's have a good time, right? We're we're all on the same page. We're all heading in the same area, right? We know this is the sense of the statement because of the way that it's written in the Greek. Okay? The verb eats written in the future tense, obviously speaking of a future event yet to take place. But it's also written with the middle voice, which speaks of the subject being affected by its own action. Okay? The, the speaker is saying, this is going to happen to me. Okay? Uh, and then it's also written in the indicative mood, which is the mood of assertion. Okay, when the writer portrays something as actual as opposed to merely possible or uh, contingent upon something else. Okay? The way this is written, it lets us know that this is an assertion this man is making about a future event that he has every bit of confidence in that he will be a part of it. And that they all will, hey, blessed is he who you know, partakes of the bread and the kingdom of God. That's what we're all going to do it was his assertion. Jesus responds to this man's assertion with yet another parable. Read the opening portion of it with verse 16 and 17. Then he said to him, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come for all things are now ready. We're going to pause right there. We're given some information here that needs to be briefly explained within the context of that day and age so that you guys might better understand what's going on here. Back in those days, whenever someone planned a great feast or a great supper, they would send out invitations to the event well in advance. However, the invitation would only be for a set day. The exact timing of the event wouldn't be given. You guys have to remember... Yeah, sometimes we don't think this through all the time, but we have to remember that everyone didn't walk around with smartphones in their pockets and watches on their wrists that are all synced to satellites orbiting in space, and everybody knows exactly what time it is at any given moment of the day, right? Most people didn't know how to tell time back then, okay? They could tell how much time was left in the day, how much more sunlight to sus- to suspect, but to have them know the hour and the minutes of a day was a little bit more than just guesswork, Okay. And so you wouldn't say, oh yeah, show up at, you know, 5.30. Well, nobody's going to know what 5.30 is, right? And so what would happen is, people would do, what people would do when they were hosting a big, you know, to-do or a feast of some kind is they would send out the invitations letting people know what day the event would be on, but the actual time of the event would be announced the day of, Okay. Once preparations were set, the meal was just about ready to be served, the host would send out messengers, servants, that would announce, hey, it's time to come in for the feast. This was the norm. And so if you, you know, in a sense, RSVP'd, as we would say today, and you said you were going to come to the event, then you would be committing to keeping your schedule open for any time in the late afternoon or early evening, because that was the typical time for this type of a meal, okay? Between the third and, and sixth hour of the day, usually, okay, you're going to sit down and you're going to have uh, a, a meal, your, your main meal, your supper. And so you're saying, hey, I'm going to keep my whole late afternoon, early evening open to be part of this event. And so, the host of the supper would send his servant or servants to all the people that RSVP'd and said they were coming to the event. And so the description here of a certain man that invited many people to supper and then sent out his servant on the day of means that his servant would be going to houses of those who had RSVP'd and and indicated they wanted to be a part of the event. The invitation would go out in advance you would respond saying, "Yeah, I'm interested." And then they would sir "Okay, I'm going to." He's not going to send the servants to, to houses that didn't respond or to houses that said, "I'm not going to come." He would only send the servants to the people that said, "Yeah, I want to. I'd like to be part of that." And so we understand what's going on here. The host had made provisions for the meal, expecting them to be there based upon their earlier response. Though this is not explained in our text, this was the norm for how things would work back in that day and age. And so it helps us understand what happens here and and how much of an affront uh, and and, uh, disrespect this is. It's very important that we understand that when it comes to what we read next. So let's take a look at verses 18 through 20. It says, but they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. All these people that had previously been invited and responded to that invitation, indicating they wanted to be a part of the event, all of a sudden started making all sorts of excuses to the servant that was sent to announce, hey, it's time to come on in. Okay, the, the, the meal is just about ready. We're getting set in the table. Come on over. And when you start to look at these excuses a little bit closer, you begin to see that none of them really make any sense. The first said that he had bought a piece of ground and that he needed to go see it. That ground is an idea of a large field. Whoever buys a piece of land without ever seeing it, right? Not very many people, right? Right? If they have that much money to be buying fields without ever seeing them, first off, then, then what's another day, right? Like, why can't you just go look at it the next day? Right? Why do you have to go see it on this particular day when you've already said you wanted to be a part of the dinner party? Also, it's getting towards the end of the day. It's supper time. How much light is going to be left for this man to actually go see his field? Okay, Not much at all, if any. And so this was a a very lame excuse this man tried to use for why he couldn't make it out and come with the servant. The second said he had just purchased five yoke of oxen, five pairs of oxen, so ten oxen in total, and that he needed to go test them. Uh, this is also a, a bogus excuse. Okay? Again, who's going to buy ten oxen without first examining them, without first testing them to make sure they were good, that they were strong? The idea behind the word test, it, it speaks of examining and proving whether something is, is worthy or of value or not. Hey, this man was a fool if he bought 10 oxen without first looking at them and examining them for their value. And the same problem arises with this guy's excuses, the last guy, in that there was barely any daylight left in order to properly examine some oxen, so why does it have to be done right now, right? And then the last guy mentioned asked to be excused because he had married a wife and was not able to come. You might think, what does this have to do with whether or not you can attend this dinner? The implication isn't that he just got married, all right? For that would be foolish for him to RSVP to an event on the same day that he's getting married, right? If the invitation goes out, okay, weddings were very elaborate, big to dos in and of itself. So it's not like you're like, oh, I forgot I'm getting I got married I'm getting married that day. You know, sorry I RSVP'd. No, 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 that that's foolish. The idea he's he's already been married. He's recently married, maybe, okay. If that was the case and he wasn't going to have time to pull himself away for the dinner, why RSVP in the first place? Why say you want to be part of the event if you know you just got married, right? And you're spending time with your wife and you're you know, doing those things and enjoying being married and why even say you're going to go to the dinner party in the first place? It just doesn't add up. This excuse is a bad one just as the others were. You now these excuses, they, they seem lame because they are lame. Okay, when you kind of start to look at them and test them out and look at them and say, well, isn't it getting late? Like, what are you really going to be able to see? What are you really going to be able to test? What are you, you know, did you not know you were going to be married? You know, like, these don't make sense. The first excuse revolved around a business deal. He had bought a piece of land and needed to check it out. It's a picture of someone who had placed business and success, monetary value, and accumulation of riches above the Lord in priority. The second excuse involved the acquisition of possessions as well, but it could also be seen as work responsibilities. He had a job to do, he needed to go test the oxen. You know, how many of us have been guilty of putting our work responsibilities above the Lord and his calling upon our lives? The third excuse was based upon a family relationship. You guys, family is important. Marriage is important, but they should never take the place of the Lord as our first and primary priority. And how often do we use our family or other personal relationships as excuses for why we don't respond to the calling God has upon our lives? I've spoken to a number of people throughout the years that have used all three of these types of excuses and more. I can't get involved, you know, because of my family. My, you know, my kids are too young or my kids are too old. I've heard both. I'm not sure what is the prime age for uh serving and plugging and answering the call, but, you know, sometimes they're too young and sometimes they're too old or my wife's too tired, my husband isn't interested. Uh, work's just so busy, you know, and it's too hard to really uh, plug in and, and get involved. Or, hey, you know, I even talk to people like, I can't wait till I retire, you know, and I can just serve the Lord. And, you know, that'll be the day, right? People use these kinds of excuses all the time when it comes to why they are not responding to God's calling upon their life. And really, they're just excuses, Things that we use to, to justify our own unwillingness to respond to God's invitation and call. And we look at, these, look at these excuses and say, oh, these are so lame, but we use forms of them all the time. We have to realize our own tendency to fall into this uh, trap as well. Let's look and see how the host responded to these excuses and what he does next. Read with me verses 21 through 24. We'll wrap this all up. It says, so that servant came and reported these things to his master and the master of the house, being angry said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, master, it is done as you commanded and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. The servant of the host Returns, he informs the host, the master of the house, that those who had previously said they were interested in being part of the event have made other plans. They have been asked to be excused. The master of the house was angry when he heard that these people had refused the invitation to come to the dinner. Remember, the idea is that they had already expressed an interest in coming. The host was planning and preparing for them to come. It wasn't like they could just, you know, save the leftovers in the refrigerator, right, and say, oh, okay, no big deal. We'll just, you know, we'll eat this over the next couple of days or whatever. No. Like, part of the planning and preparations, you know how many people are going to be there. you got to butcher your animals and prep it and make all the food and preparations, and it's going to be eaten and consumed at that party, is the, the sense and idea. It was a huge insult. It was a sign of disrespect to say that you were coming and then back out after that. Last hour basically, right before, hey, I've made everything for you. Every single provision's been made for you. It's all ready. Why don't you come on in and enter in? Oh, you know what? Something's come up. I'm going to hit the road. What? <laughs> that is extremely disrespectful, extremely an affront, okay? And so in response to this rejection of those first guests, the master decides to offer up their place at the table to those in the city who had nothing to offer, the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, the same people that Jesus had exhorted the ruler of the Pharisees to invite to his house. And after doing so, there was still more room at the table for more guests. And so the master of the house instructed his servant to go into the highways and into the hedges. The wording here suggests going outside the city towards the surrounding region into the countryside. Now, specifically, the word hedges speaks of a fence or a hedge bush that was usually surrounding a vineyard. And for all intents and purposes, it served as a wall or a partition of sorts. And it could very well be that this is a play on words. Because it is equivalent to the middle wall of partition that's spoken of in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. There Paul writes how Jesus himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. If you're not familiar with that portion of scripture, and he said this in context to the Gentiles and the Jews being brought together as one in the faith. And so the servant would have to compel those who were outside the city amongst the hedges to come in because they were normally never would be welcomed at such an event. We look at the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles and we can understand uh, why he would have to compel them because the Jews didn't have any interactions or whatsoever with the Gentiles. This was something totally new. It would come as a shock to these outsiders to think that they could come in and participate in a dinner fellowship like this. And so it would take much compelling from the master's servants. But I want you guys to know the main goal of the master. The main goal of the master is that his house would be filled. That he didn't want a single seat left empty. He made provisions for as many as wanted to come that would respond to the invitation. He wanted every spot to be taken up. He wanted his house to be completely filled. Okay? It didn't matter where you came from. It didn't matter what your background was, whether you were rich or poor, whether you were weak or strong, whether you were lame or blind. It did not matter. All were welcome in the master's house. And the interpretation of this parable is quite clear to understand, you guys. Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of God here. The master of the house is the Lord. The dinner party is, I believe, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The uh, glorious celebration of all who are in Christ that will take place in heaven. Those who had initially expressed interest in participating in this event but later declined are the Jews. Those out in the highways and hedges that were welcomed in are the Gentiles. The house where the event takes place is heaven. The servant sent out by the master of the house could refer to the prophets, but I think even more specifically, Jesus Christ himself, who arrives on the scene and says, it's time. And all provisions have been made. Come on in, Okay but the Jews rejected Jesus Christ. Jesus' final words are quite stinging when we understand that heavenly truth portrayed by this parable. He said, For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. The implication is clear. The presumptuous Jew that believed all the Jews would sit down and partake in this feast together with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets of old, they are mistaken. Those that rejected the invitation to come through God's servant and through God's Son, will not taste of the feast God is preparing for those who respond in faith to the invitation to come. Jesus challenged this Jew's statement and belief that all the Jews would partake together in the feast of the Lord. He clearly showed that it will only be those who graciously respond to the invitation of God's servant that will be welcomed into the Master's house. And while this parable is directly related to the Jews, I believe in their rejection of Jesus and the excuses that were made for why they didn't respond to him, I still think there's a, a warning for us to heed here as well. We need to make sure that we aren't following in the footsteps of the Jews and making excuses for why we haven't responded to the invitation to come to God by grace through faith. The invitation has gone out. Have you responded? Have you RSVP'd for your spot at the dinner table? Do not put it off any longer. Stop resisting. Yield your heart and your life to the Lord. God's invitation to his banqueting table is the most important invitation you will ever receive. Do not delay. Stop making excuses. I promise you, you will not regret responding to this invitation and claiming your spot at the dinner table of the Lord. Looking over this entire study, I want to just note something with you guys real fast as a matter of conclusion, okay? We see a great pattern for how we can confront others who we might say are delusional uh, in their thinking when it comes to Jesus Christ and God's plan for them. Those who have been deceived, those who have been led to believe lies uh, instead of the truth of the gospel. We need to confront them. We need to confront people with the truth. but We share that truth in love. And we do so with great humility. We bring the message to the least and lost, and we urge them to consider the eternal, not the temporal. And we compel them as best as possible to respond to God's loving invitation. That's how I believe God would have us to reach out to those who don't know the Lord, to the lost, to the least, that we would do so with the truth, that we do so with love, that we would do so with humility, that we would bring that message to the least and to the lost, that we would emphasize the eternal and not the temporary, and that we would compel them with everything that we have to respond to God's gracious invitation. And I believe if we will look to that pattern and follow it, God will use us to welcome and be part of inviting people into his kingdom. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the work that you've done. And Lord, even this uh, pattern that we see, how you were not afraid to confront these people who had um, the wrong beliefs, they had the wrong ideas, they had built... Their lives upon uh, lies and traditions of men that were just not accurate, Lord. And and Lord, you didn't uh, tiptoe around it, but you shared the truth boldly. Lord, you did so in love. You exampled humility for us. Lord, you uh, brought that message to the least, to the lost, to anybody that would hear it, Lord. And you focused upon the eternal and you compelled them, you compelled us to respond to that invitation. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here that's yet to respond to that invitation, Lord, has yet to RSVP for their place at the dinner table, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they do so, that they would surrender their heart and life to you, and that they would know that their sins have been forgiven, that they would know that they have a place secure with you in heaven because of what your son Jesus Christ did for us. And Lord, I pray, do that work in our hearts and lives. For those of us who have our, our SVP secure, Lord, we thank you that it is secure in your hands, that our place is um, set. And Lord, uh, we long for that day, that we will be with you. But until that time, Lord, I pray that we'd be used to bring as many people with us to the party. We pray and ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.